Lee Bevington Media, voiceovers and on-air talent for radio, television and podcasts. Visit leebevington.com.au. Radio, the transmission and reception of electromagnetic waves on radio frequency, especially those carrying sound messages, or the activity or industry of broadcasting sound programs to the public. Fanboy. A male fan, especially one who behaves in an obsessive or overexcited way. This is the Radio Fanboy Podcast, and here's your host, Bevo. Our guest today is quite a very well-known voiceover artist here in Australia. Uh, Born with dwarfism, he knows what it's like to have the odds stacked against him. At 15, his voice broke, giving him a unique gift that paved the way for his future, a story of what's possible when you have courage. Would you please make welcome Ian Lofty Fulton to the Radio Fanboy Podcast. G'day, Lofty. G'day, Lee. Thank you for having me on here today. I do tonight, whatever time zone <laughs> you may be listening to us in the world. So, yeah, look, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, the invite, and it's good to chat to you. This is very exciting because not only are you a voiceover artist, but you've told your story in the form of a publication which came out in 2019 so we we might get a bit of a a sneak peek into what is involved with your story through this podcast especially uh the radio sides of things so Mm -hmm. let's go back to where it all started 15 your voice broke you discovered you had this amazing gift um actually i can't take credit for the discovery I've, i've got to give credit to to my mother or my late mother um now years unfortunately um but when uh, i as you as you mentioned in the intro i was uh, born with dwarfism and a particular type of dwarfism called achondroplasia and that's noted um primarily by short arms and legs a normal length torso and a larger head giving that sort of odd appearance that 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 people find so intriguing with dwarfism. And uh, for any Game of Thrones fans who are listening, Peter Dinklage, a legendary actor from that series, has a contraplasia to put it into a perspective for people. So I top out at the the ripe old height of four foot eight and a bit on a good hair day, but now being in my... um, in my mid fifties, there's not that much hair, so it's more uh, more just four foot eight. And um, yeah, I was the only one in my family out of four kids, or anybody in our entire ancestral line that we can go back as far as um, who who has the condition. It's just one of those things that um, that pops up randomly about one in every twenty five thousand births. So um, yeah, my number was up, so to speak. It's incredible because. Like you said, 15 is when you your voice broke. The idea that you could use this to give yourself a career, what, what was the um, discovery like there? Um, well, again, it did uh, it come – I got to hark back to my mother and give her the credit for it because um, I – and um, I hope you don't mind me sort of like digressing and sharing the story as to the day that my voice actually broke and for uh, all – all males past the age of puberty or for those going through it at the moment uh, listening to this particular podcast you know what it's like when you're going through that sort of stage of your voice trying to find its feet I 
don't, as I recall, uh, I didn't have that sort of like, okay, one moment it's up here and then it's down there and then it's back up here again and oh my God, why can't my voice just find its own home? Um, I literally woke up one morning, it was a weekend, my mother uh, was cleaning the house and from my bed I could see down the hallway and I could see her in, you know, her cleaning clothes, so to speak, that, you know, if you sort of like picture back in the 70s, um, you know, Alice from the Brady Bunch sort of, uh, you know, people had their clothes that they cleaned the house in, you know, mow the lawn in, all of that kind of stuff. So mum had her dedicated cleaning clothes, complete with its apron. She had feather duster in hand. She had her back to me and I just looked down the hall and said, cup of tea and toast, thanks, mum. And she stopped. I, Bevo, I just remember the, the feather duster, you know, pausing midair, a bit like the Statue of Liberty, but instead of a torch, it was a feather dust. <laughs> and she's wheeled around, and my mother was a big one for manners, and she said, what did you say to me? And I thought, oh, I'm sure I said please. Oh. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I definitely said no, I said thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I repeated myself, a cup of tea and toast, thanks, Mum. Oh, I must be getting the cold. My voice sounds a bit different. And mum just looked at me as if to say, who are you and what have you done with my son? <laughs> and, um, you know, that was that was the day that my voice broke. And so um, school was not a happy place for me, high school. Uh, I mean, we've all got our stories of uh, our unhappy years. Um Unfortunately, being so different to all the other kids, and this is down in uh, Launceston in Tasmania where I grew up, and like all high schools, uh, they generally are a pool of a number of different primary schools coming together. And for those listening in the US, you're talking sort of, I suppose, elementary school to junior high type time. And... um, I went to the new high school, much bigger than the primary school I was at, and there were these kids who just looked at me and that was the start of some really nasty bullying. So um, year 10, I was determined to just leave school and get whatever job I possibly could. And I had had my heart set on for many years being a chef, but when it became plainly obvious that my stature wasn't going to allow me to work in commercial kitchens. I was like, well, stuff it. I don't care. I just want to get a job and get the hell out of here. And my mum said to me, look, why don't you go on to matric years 11 and 12? Because in Tasmania, that's done in a separate college. It's it's a greater sort of, to my mind, a better preparation for those wanting to go on to university rather than, you know, leaving the high school system as you know it where you're wearing your uniform and tie and you boys straighten that tie to the the free range aspect of university matriculation college in tassie was a was a better um preparation for that because there was no uniform it was responsible you were responsible for your own education if you didn't want to go to class no big deal and the only class that I attended uh, that I absolutely loved on a regular basis was speech and drama oh, of course. and um, that's after mum convinced me to sort of go to matric I said mum you know I barely survived high school why would I do that she said it's not going to be anything like high school and she was right it was a uh, 
there was a lot more social aspect to it for me anyway and um, the bullying had stopped and all of that kind of stuff and um, mum had suggested to me, she said, look, you should think about radio as a career and I, you know, being the obnoxious teenager I was, I said, yeah, sure, mum, what do you know? However, she was working in radio sales for uh, one of the smaller regional networks uh, down in Tasmania at the time. So she, you know, basically knew what she was talking about but, you know, teenage kids and their mothers, teenage kids generally have very little respect for their parents so she suggested to my speech and drama teacher on a um, parent-teacher night one night that uh, I might have a career in radio so when Mrs Montgomery who I absolutely adored Mrs Monty um said look you know you should think about radio as a career that's a great idea you know, but the idea all along belonged to my mother. But um, 7LA in, in Launceston was a station that would give schools airtime to come in and report on what they had done oh, yeah. uh, during their term or their semester, part of their basically their community service charter or community service aspect, which was, you know, very much a part of the radio charter way back then. You had to devote a certain amount of time to community uh, involvement. And Mrs. Monty was in charge of giving out the reports for the matriculation college. And the first few I did, Bev, I was so incredibly nervous, even though they were pre-recorded. Mm. And the, the last one I did, I thought, hang on, if if I make a mistake, they can just rewind the tape. And yeah. It was taped back in those days. Yeah. And um, uh, I thought, okay, I'll just relax and do it and, you know, sort of see what happens. Anyway, uh, it went to air. I was still 15 at the time, and this is in year 11. And the breakfast announcer at the time, Ron Christie, after the report went to air, just said, that guy's got a big future in radio. Wow. And you can imagine hearing, you know, hearing who you thought was a demigod, because in the 60s and 70s, radio was a huge part of people's Mm. lives. It still was in the 80s. And as you know, you know, you've worked in the industry, you know what it was like, still is. Uh, but even more so back then before, you know, uh, so many other forms of communication and, and entertainment. It was You had a TV sitting in the corner of your lounge or you listened to the radio in the car or, you know, your clock radio beside your bed. Radio went everywhere with you. Uh, so it was a big part of people's lives. So for the breakfast announcer to say that, I was climbing the walls. The confidence must have just gone through the roof. Oh, it was like, oh, I can't believe he said that. Anyway, I, I was at school that day and uh, I got called to the office and I thought, okay, what have I done? And I knew I hadn't really done anything worth being called to the office for, but it was a phone message from the manager of uh, 7LA, John Seaman, saying, um, please call the radio station, which I did, spoke to his secretary. She said, look, um, John was wondering if you'd like to come in for a chat. And I said, oh, look, you know, do you know what it was about? And she said, I'm not sure, but I think it's about a job. <laughs> Wow. And so, um, sorry, at this stage, this was the second year of um, matriculation. Uh, and I went in, had a chat to John, and he said, look, we'd like to um, we'd like to train you after school. You can come in and learn the ropes and all of that. We, went, we won't, of course, interfere with your schooling. But, you know, if you'd like to work in radio, you know, we'd like to offer you the opportunity to learn the ropes here and, you know, possibly fill in if somebody's sick and so on. So I was sort 
sort of like a bit the floater I was always slotted into late nights and because I just didn't have the experience as a yeah. teenager as you can imagine and uh, that experience was enough for John who was at a uh, management conference sitting next to Ron Livingston who was the manager of 7BU in Burnie and Ron said to him you know we've just lost our nighttime guy do you know a rookie who might be able to fill the position and he said I think I've got just the guy for you so I went down had the interview and uh, 7BU became my first full-time radio station. Wow. Do you remember what the show was called back then, Lofty? There wasn't actually a show name for it. It okay. was just um, I started as Ian Fulton. Yep. But it was there that I got the name Lofty. Yep. Uh, it comes from an old TV series on the by the BBC called It Ain't Half Hot Mum. There was a little guy in that. Uh, he didn't have dwarfism, but Don Adams, I think his name was, he had an amazing singing voice. Yep. He was a little gunner sergeant, always wore a pith helmet, and they called him Lofty in the show. And ah, I was uh, right. getting ready to come on after... Um, Rob Bean one day and Rob was playing his last record before vacating the chair and yes they were vinyl back then um, and said Lofty's next so when he switched the mic off I've gone what? He said Lofty he said that's what I'm going to call you yep. and because it was never born out of malice it was not one of those horrible schoolyard names no. it stuck Yes. And here we are some, God, nearly 40 years down the track. I mean, you've worked with um, some amazing talent in your time, both as a uh, announcer and a voiceover artist, but there was a period where you thought, look, I've had enough of radio, I'm walking away, um, I'm going to be mm-hmm. a voiceover artist. Do you remember that time? I do indeed. Um, so I started my first job, as I mentioned, uh, at 7BU in Burnie in 1982, and I remember it really well because at the time the Falklands War was in full flight as well, and these are back in the days, and Bevo, you and I have um, had that experience of working in radio stations where you've got to be a jack of all trades. Mm. We used to rip and read from the telex. Um, you know, we had to record our own commercials, cart our own commercials, make our own commercials. You basically had to learn how to do everything, which, you know, at the time you aren't resented doing it, but it became a really good grounding for it. But um, 10 years further on, I was at uh, CFM on the Gold Coast, the original CFM, uh, which launched in 1989, and that was something special to be a part of a brand new radio station from the ground up. Who was uh, um, on air at that time, Lofty? Who were you working Oh, with? God. Uh, on air then, breakfast was uh, Sammy Power and Craig Bruce. Wow. Uh, then, then me doing mornings uh, or mornings early afternoon. Graham Durry Rogers doing um, Drive, 2 till 6. Um, Simon Franks did Nights, or Drive might have been 2 till 7, I can't remember now. Um, and Simon Franks did Nights, uh, 6 till 10. Then Late Nights were shared between uh, Dean Miller and Joe Miller. And Steve Carline was also there at the radio oh, station yeah, as well, doing Steve, some yeah. mid-dawns. Yep. And, um, yeah, there was there were a host of people who came through that place. So I was there for, like, a couple of years. And, and Bevo, as you know, um, this is, what, like, 1991, 92? Yeah. We were still playing music off CDs. It was way before automation and hard drives and so on. So you were physically you know, they're committed to the studio for your four or six hour shift. There was no sort of voice tracking and lining it all up. It, um, you you physically had to change 
the CDs and play the carts and do all of that and do the live announcements, etc. And I didn't know it then, but I was, I'd suffered all my life with high anxiety and I found it very hard to sit still. And um, I'd become really bored, as you know, Bevo, that as the listening audience is getting used to a song and taking a liking to a song, we as announcers have already flogged it to death. Yep. And, you know, it's like um, nothing against Madonna at all. But, you know, <laughs> that that's the brand new song from Madonna. It's like, oh, you know, if I have to play that again, I'm going to scream type routine. Yep. So I thought uh, I had to learn how to read commercials as part of the gig. Why don't I see, you know, if I can give this freelancing thing a go. And I moved to Sydney in 92. Um, I was still married at the time and uh, I stayed with my mother during the week and would get back to Brisbane when I could, which was every couple of weeks or so. So, um, Jamie Meldrum, who has since sadly passed away, uh, he was a content director in Singapore right up until his passing. Um, he and, uh, God, Paul Stevens had, were doing the nights, night slot at that stage at CFM in 92 called the Budskies. Yes, I remember it well. It was awesome. Yep, the Budskies. Well, you might have encountered Jamie when he was in Sydney as well at 2UW for a while. And his father, Ross, was, um. Uh, the program director and Jamie, God love him, rang his dad and said, uh, Lofty's coming to Sydney to have a crack at voiceover work. If, you know, you got any casual work for him. So I was doing weekend shifts on 2UW and applying my trade as a as a voiceover announcer or a, as a voiceover artist rather uh, during the week. It took a while to take flight, but we got there eventually. Do you remember the first time you had to say cold, hard cash? Cold, hard cash. There we go. <laughs> uh, cold, hard cash. That would have been, God, 7BU probably. Okay, uh, yep. It would have been either The Secret Sound yeah. or um, The Secret. They also had like a, a secret site as in a location that you ah. had to determine by the clues. Okay. And back then, th- we're talking high finance back then for a regional radio station. It yep. would jackpot by $5 a day. <laughs> but, you know, like in... In you know 1981, 82, that was a that was a decent size sort of you know if it got up to fifty bucks, there's um there's your weekend drinking money. So yeah. definitely, I remember looking at uh, some of your old photos, Lofty, and you had a pretty impressive mullet, might I say? Oh, impressive. I don't know that impressive is the word. <laughs> And unless, you know, a mullet is impressive, um, yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had that mullet. And God, what was I thinking? What were any of us thinking, those oh. of us who had mullets back then? John Bon Jovi was the uh, the icon back in the day. And oh, all, the, all the blokes that had long hair just wanted to be like him. Oh, exactly, and you know the the mullet was was a long standing hairstyle uh, which stuck with me right through until you know God knows when. Um, thankfully, I started to see sense by the late nineties. I think probably, maybe, possibly before then, but it was definitely part and parcel of it at CFM. Some of the photos that you would have seen that, and um, you know, they were good times and great rock and roll. So yes. you, the mullet, you know, was part and parcel of it. When did the voice become an imaging voice, so to speak? Because you said you, you went to Sydney, you were you're doing the shifts and you started recording commercials and so forth. When was it that you became like the voice of a station? Yeah. Um, God, it was actually before I left radio, a dear friend of mine, Paul Covington, uh, was program director up at 
2GF in Grafton. We knew each other from uh, Tassie. He um, worked in Devonport and I worked in Burnie and they were sister stations, so we'd be chatting to each other down the line. We were the same age and we'd catch up on our days off. And um, Paul went to Grafton and asked me if I'd do some imaging for them. That was kind of my first crack at it. Uh, But I also kind of landed the gig at CFM initially doing a bit of imaging that Steve Hunt was getting me to do. And then, of course, the late Ray McGregor, a fantastic voice and talent, took over that. And uh, they offered me the the morning shift. So it was like, yeah, we'd like you to come and work on air with us. It's like, whoa, you're kidding me. Because I'd had a really, really unpleasant experience in in Brisbane uh, where I basically just thought my radio days were numbered. And, you know, obviously my – and I – talk about this particular situation in the book. Um, You being a Brisbane boy, Lee, uh, or having spent some time in Brisbane, you'd be aware of the old 4IP Stereo 10, Radio 10 days. Yes, Dave Um, Daly's a friend of mine. Yep. Well, Dave, Dave and I worked together at Stereo 10, um, and then that became Light and Easy 1008, which was just a disaster of a format. I think it it lasted no more than about 12 months. Uh, Management, new management came in. They basically fired everyone but asked me to stay, and they said, you know, we've got a position for you. Uh, They were, their management style was not great. Okay, this, this is a pep talk that I literally received from the station manager one day. Uh, I had to do a tape for what was then 2SM. It was um, Stereo 10 2SM um, were sister stations and they were looking to buy 3XY in Melbourne and put the same format in it. And I had to do it in the off-air studio, which very saw, very rarely saw the light of day. So this studio was not calibrated. It hadn't sent a technician sort of in Yonks. And back then we were using domestic CD machines and one of the songs I had to play was Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. Yeah. And that barely makes a VU meter bump that song, you know, un- unless it's it's played on proper equipment. And so from that, they deemed that my panelling was shocking, my on-air work was shocking. So the conversation literally went like this, and this this, had, this was the end of a, a long line of abuse. And um, they sort of subscribed to that, to my mind, they subscribed to that treat and mean, keep them keen sort yeah. of routine and, you know, threatening to sack you every other day, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, I got summoned to the uh, the manager's office alongside the PD. Um, I was sat down in the chair and he said, well, we've learnt one thing from your tape. Your panelling's fucked. Wow. You'll never get a job at an FM station. You sit on air playing with your voice. Who do you think you are, Jim Pilgrim? Oh. Jim Pilgrim was a legendary um, voiceover talent yeah. in Brisbane since passed away. Um, and no, of course I didn't think I was Jim Pilgrim. Um, your production's fucked. Oh, yeah, you don't relate to our audience. We're targeting 37-year-old women and you just simply don't relate to them. I was married to one at the time. She hated the format, never listened to the, <laughs> never listened to the um, radio station. In fact, I think some of their some of their demographics sort of reach the uh, the heights of an asterisk, which for those who aren't familiar with surveys, is when a listening audience can't actually be found in that demographic. Yes. It, it appears as a as an asterisk. Yeah. And so, as I say, this was the end of a long line of abuse, and so I left that meeting feeling very, very demoralised and thinking, okay, my my days are obviously numbered, and I'm no good at this, so. 
um, perhaps better off leaving the industry, went and rang my wife and said, this is the latest. She said, just get out of there. She said, resign. She said, I don't care what you do, you know, be a brickies labourer for, but you're not putting up with that any, any longer. And I then made another phone call to Jim Johnston, who was at 4BH in Brisbane at the time. Uh, they were the number two station. They were a um, 55 plus station and very dominant in that demographic. And I rang him and said, this is what's going on. I've got to get out of here. And he said, look, sit tight. I'll give you a call back. And he gave me a call back and he said, the station manager's waiting to hear from you. We'll, we'll have you out of there in about 24 hours. I rang the station manager. He said, look, um, what's going on? I said, I don't know. Whatever I do, it's not right. And, you know, this is the latest pep talk that I've had. He said, well, how would you like to come over here and do some mid-dawns and weekend shifts and things like that? And it was like, I'd love to. Because, um, Lee, I don't know if you've ever experienced the the overbearing management where they're continually abusing the crap out of you. They don't get away with it these days, of course. But, no, um, definitely. Back, back then they did. Yeah. And... Um, so I resigned and, and left. But the irony of it was I was at uh, 4BH and having a great time. It was like going from, you know, Long Bay Jail to, <laughs> to a country club. Great Graham, analogy, yeah. Graham Rigby was, um, or a concentration camp to a, um, to a country club. Graham Rigby was the program director and he knew what I'd been through. And he said, really like what you're doing on air. Or, you know, he'd hear a commercial and say, I heard that commercial, good job. And it's like wow, these people treat you like humans. Yeah. And it was a really great place to work. And then one day I got a phone message, please ring Steve Hunt, who I didn't know who Steve was at the time. And um, I returned the call and Steve said, um, Lofty, just wanting to know if you'd like to do some voiceover work with us. I'm getting a brand new radio station off the ground here on the Gold Coast called um, CFM. And wondering if you'd like to do some uh, work with us. I said, yeah, I'd love to. And so in the course of uh, recording sessions at 4BK, as it was then part of the Austereo Network, um, they said, we'd like to offer you nights. And I went, oh, guys, look, you know, I'm doing dawns and I'm really happy. I'm on a five-day week, get two days a week off. I, You know, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. So I'm happy to keep doing voice work for you. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll stay where I am. Thanks. And then the next session, he came back and he said, okay, he said, how about mornings, 10 till 2? And I went, what? Are you serious? Yeah. He said, yeah, we want you to do mornings. I said, cool, great. And I was there for just over two years. March 20, 1989 was the launch, and I left in about March, uh, nearly three years, I suppose. March 92 is when I bit the bullet and came to um, Sydney to do freelancing. Sorry, to clarify that, they were using 4BK's production studios because CFM Studios were still being built down the Gold Coast. And I was living in Brisbane. Steve was in Brisbane doing... Uh, working out of the 4BK studios, doing all the production for CFM out of there until their facilities were ready. Ah, gotcha, okay. Only cool. in, as you know, what, only an hour up the road or so, so, yeah, not yeah. far away at all. You've found yourself to become an author. You really want to tell your story because people are intrigued. Um, how that came about, Bevo, was uh, in, I mentioned earlier on in in the conversation that um, I didn't know it, but I had battled uh, with high anxiety all my life. Um, 
And, you know, the benefit of hindsight is great now. You can look back and go, uh-huh, I see where, you know, I, I see all the elements of my life where this has had an effect. And in um, 2013, I, I basically had a breakdown, or as my psychologist calls it, a breakthrough. And I fell into a very deep, dark pit of depression uh, and anxiety, and I essentially stopped functioning Um and for anybody who's ever endured high anxiety or, or clinical depression, um, it is it is no fun whatsoever. And, and when I say depression, some people say, oh, you know, how are you today? Oh, I'm depressed. Why? Oh, I broke a fingernail. No, that's, you know, that's not depression um, in its clinical sense. That's you're having a bad day. And when you are caught within the grips of depression, um you find it very hard to function. Helen, the love of my life, not my ex-wife, but uh, my partner now. Um, to give you an idea, Bebo, she was she was happy if during that time I got out of bed, had a shower. Even if I went back to bed, that was okay, or I moved to the couch, that was fine. But depression and mental illness in its um, in its pure form is is very debilitating along with anxiety it's um and this is my analogy it's not a clinical analogy but i i describe them like the opposite poles of a magnet and if as a kid when playing with magnets you've ever tried to put two magnets together they repel one another yeah anxiety is one pole depression is the other Um, okay for my in my experience um somebody said uh, a friend of mine rang me who had been through it and said, look, you know, if you ever need to talk to somebody, please, you know, um, always reach out. doesn't matter what time of day or night, and I'll always be very grateful to him for that. We were talking about it, and he said, let me, let me sort of summarise kind of what you're going through, and you're still trying to find a sense of it. He said, depression, he said, I described like this. He said, somebody can walk in and go, congratulations, you've just won the Powerball jackpot. You have no financial worries for the rest of your life. You can do whatever you want. Pre-COVID days, of course. Um, You can do whatever you like without a care in the world. And it doesn't even register a blip on your emotional radar. You go, oh, okay, thanks. Then conversely, somebody can walk in and go, oh, man, I've got the worst news. Your house has just burnt down. You've, you know, you've lost all your belongings and all your worldly possessions. All you've got left are the clothes on your back. Oh, okay. Yeah. And when you are in the throes of depression, that's, that is a really great analogy. Whereas anxiety is sort of like fear of, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? That's high anxiety, Um, you know. uh, And my psychologist actually described it uh, to Helen on our our first visit. I was very lucky. I I got the right help at the right time and I got put on the right meds at the right time. And he said, Helen, do you know what anxiety is like? And she said, I think I understand it, but I've never experienced it uh, personally. So he said, okay. He said, look, let me describe it like this. He said, Anxiety is part of the fight and flight, which is what stops us from walking out in the middle of traffic and getting run over. Something says, hey, stop on the side of the curb and check for traffic before you just wander on out. You know, that's the that's the survival instinct and that's anxiety in its healthy form. Or, oh my God, my house is on fire, I need to get out of here. That's a healthy form of anxiety. The unhealthy form of anxiety is is kind of like this. He said, I could bring a lion 
into this office right now. And he said, Helen, you, me, Lofty, we'd all freak out going, oh my God, that lion's going to eat me. Get that lion out of here. And our survival instinct would kick in, the fight and flight, and say, got to get away from the lion, otherwise I'm not going to survive. He said, I then take the lion out of the office. He said, Helen, chances are you'd calm down and go, great, danger's averted, it's passed. I would calm down going, yep, great, danger's gone, lion's back in its cage where it should be. Chances are, Lofty, you would be sitting there going, what did he do with the lion? Is it outside the door? Is it just around the corner? Did he put the lion in my car? Oh my God, where's that lion? Is it what? And that, that, to my mind, sums up high anxiety. It is sort of like the catastrophizing of the worst possible scenario that you can think of at any given time. And for me, it was constant and um, it broke me. I was only sleeping a couple of hours a night and then eventually I just kind of went off the rails and stopped functioning. That was your really dark corner, which led you to to write your story. Well, yeah, it's. Um, I was interviewed by uh, a friend of mine who's a journalist um, and a freelance writer, and she wanted to do a story on both myself and Nick Mackay, another well-known voiceover artist here in Sydney. Uh, and we've had an enduring friendship from the day we met in the agency RMK that we joined at the same time way back then. And um, she just wanted to write about our friendship and our, you know, our similar careers. And that got published in the um, uh, Two of Us segment of the um, Fairfax Sunday papers at the time, um, Sunday Life magazine. And so I posted a link to that. And I was also interviewed by uh, Laura Murphy Oates, did a piece on me for the SBS The Feed. And I just posted a couple of these things to Facebook going, you know, hey, Here's the links to these stories and, you know, stoked to have been featured. And somebody just said, Lofty, you should write a book. And it wasn't the first time that it had been suggested to me, but back when it was suggested to me initially, my anxiety went, no way, who's going to be interested in your story? Forget it. And I went, you know what? I think I'll do that. And I reached out to Nicole, who'd done the article for the two of us, and she was both a friend and a neighbour at the time. We were living in Dural on the outskirts of uh, Sydney. I said, Nicole, I'm thinking about writing a book. She said, well, how about Scott, her husband, and I, we'll come up and have a chat on Sunday, you know, over a glass of wine. I said, I'm thinking of writing a book. And she said, I'll be your ghostwriter. I went, oh, cool. So um, I just sat down, started writing stuff. The first chapter was about the breakdown and what I went through with that. And she invited a friend of hers to pop on over on the um, on the following Friday. This was like the last Sunday in February of 2017. I just want to give you the timeline on this because this is how extraordinary that it, it kind of really was. Yeah. Um, and that following Friday, she invited a friend over to her place for a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and I didn't know who this person was. And she said, oh, look, I've been telling Sally about you, and um, she, she'd she love to meet you, and how about you bring the uh, breakdown chapter with you? And so I read the breakdown chapter to Sally, who I, as I say, didn't know who Sally was. Her name is Sally Murray, and at the time she was uh, scouting for the publishing houses if there were... Uh, manuscripts she thought worthy, she'd put them forward to the, the the publishers and she'd said to HarperCollins, look, this is what I know about this guy. I'm going to go have a cup of coffee with him. And they said, okay, get back to us once you know more. I read the breakdown chapter to her and she said, what happened next? 
And she said, I want to know more. I said, well, still writing it. And she said, oh, my God. She went back to HarperCollins and said, definitely a story here. We were then invited to a meeting at HarperCollins in Sydney uh, and we were offered a publishing contract. So from the thought of writing a book in that last week of February to uh, I think about the third week of March, we had a signed contract with HarperCollins for publication. That's unreal. Yeah. Sorry to all budding authors who are trying to get their manuscripts noticed, but um, that was my experience of it. And it got published in 2019. And then, of course, COVID hit. But um, uh, for those who'd like to take a look at it, uh, the title of the book is Lofty, My Life in Short. Uh, Lofty is spelled L-O-F for Freddie, T-Y. So loftymylifeinshort.com. If you go to the website, it'll uh, tell you all about it as to how you can get a copy. You uh, you made a video too promoting your book and hoping to get uh, noticed by the one and only Oprah plus Alan. Um, I did get noticed yeah. by Alan. Alan Jones interviewed me during the launch of the oh. book. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, Ellen. Yeah. Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah, that's uh, right. It's, I've got it on Instagram, I think, and also on my Facebook page. So, yeah, anyone out there who knows Oprah or Ellen, I've got a book that they might want to read. I was going so, to say, the, the video circulated across uh, so many different channels and um, I was just hoping that maybe you've heard from some of their people. No, not as, not as yet. Um, but, you know, still keeping those fingers crossed. It's um, things happen in strange and mysterious ways, as we know, Bevo. It's like um, if somebody had said to me, you're going to write a book, I would have gone, yeah, I might read a book, but I won't write one. Yeah. And I can imagine my high school teachers going, now, you mean he read a book? Yeah. Even that is surprising. If yeah. he'd read a No, he actually wrote a book. <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, – but, yeah, hopefully uh, one day we can get it out to the wider world and, you know, past the shores of Australia and um, the South Pacific region where it did get published by HarperCollins. Uh, it would be great if one of the other uh, publishers overseas picked it up and ran with it. So um, it, it's been – I've had I've had a lot of very lovely emails from people saying, look, thank you for sharing your story. I've been battling with bullies all my life yeah. or I got bullied when I was younger. I've been battling with mental illness. I too have been through a marital breakdown. I too had an addiction. Uh, I had addiction to gambling which you can read all about um yeah it's it's all laid bare there's basically no secrets left so um i mean i'm sure there would be but uh good luck finding them i've written about most of them i think ian lofty fulton thank you so much for telling your radio story here on the radio fanboy podcast Oh, Lee, look, thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Like the Radio Fanboy podcast? Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or visit leebevington.com.au. Lee Bevington Media, voiceovers and on-air talent for radio, television, and podcasts.